I'd like to welcome everybody on behalf of the LSE Middle East Center to this lecture, Reconsidering the 1948 Arab-Israeli War, with Professor Benny Morris of Ben-Gurion University. My name is Professor Nigel Ashton. Um, I'm from the International History Department here, and I'm chairing this event in my capacity as a member of the management group at the LSE Middle East Center. Well, I um, also would like to thank, in addition to the Middle East Center that's hosting this uh, event, the Anglo-Israel Association for helping to set it up. Um, the Middle East Center, as I'm sure a number of you know, who've already been to events uh, around the LSE, has established um, a lively program of lectures and conferences. The center's mailing list is open uh, to all, so anyone who hasn't signed up uh, is welcome uh, to join. And please enter your details on uh, forms that will be passed around during this lecture or sign up through the Centre's website. Okay, let me describe what's going to happen. Professor Morris will speak first for something like 30 minutes. Uh, after that, we will have um, the Q&A session um, and we'll conclude by 8 o'clock this evening at the latest. Just a little bit more about Professor Morris before he speaks. He is um, Professor of Middle East History at Ben-Gurion University in Israel, where he's worked since 1997. He's also been affiliated to the Truman Institute of the Hebrew University uh, in Jerusalem, the Brookings Institution, and also St. Anthony's College, Oxford. Um, he worked during the period 1978 to 91 as a journalist at the Jerusalem Post. Uh, his books include uh, The Birth of the Palestinian Refugee Problem and also One State, Two States, Resolving the Israel-Palestine Conflict. Um, so, Professor Morris, I'll hand over to you now. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I'm going to talk a little about the 1948 war, the first war between the Arabs and the, the Israelis. Um, I'll just say, so make several introductory remarks. Um, you can say that the war was triggered by the beginning of Zionist settlement in Palestine uh, from 1882 on. Um, uh, from 1917-18, the British ruled Palestine until 1947-48. Um, the Zionist enterprise burgeoned during those years, Palestinian nationalism emerged during those years, um, and the clash between Palestinian nationalists and um, the Zionist enterprise, the Zionist settlers in Palestine, um, became more or less inevitable given that the Palestinians wanted to retain all of Palestine for themselves. The Zionists initially wanted all of Palestine for themselves, um, but from 1937 on were willing to um, make do with part of Palestine for a Jewish state, um, uh, but the Palestinians rejected that as well. Uh, in 1937, the Palestinians rejected the British Peel Commission um, recommendations to partition Palestine into a small Jewish state, 17% of Palestine for the Jews, and the rest essentially for the Arabs, the Arabs of Palestine to be united with the Emirate of Transjordan, the Palestinian Arabs and the Arab world around rejected the 1937 uh, proposals of the Peel Commission. In 1947, another international um, inquiry and commission, uh, the UNSCOP, um, uh, um, 
proposed a second partition um, uh, solution to the ongoing national conflict between these two communities, um, giving or eventually in the United Nations General Assembly vote in uh, the 29th of November 1947, the United, the United Nations proposed that the country be partitioned into two states, one for the Palestinian Arabs, one for the Jews of Palestine, the Jews to get 50 to 55 percent of the land, the Palestinians to get 45 percent of the land. Uh, the Palestinians and the Arab states around rejected the partition proposal. Um, um, the Jews accepted the UN partition proposal and the Palestinians went to war against the Jewish community in Palestine in order to frustrate um, the implementation of that UN proposal of partition. The war which followed began in fact on the 30th of November 47 with the first shots being fired um, by an ambush by uh, Arab guerrillas, terrorists, whatever you want to call them, uh, at two Jewish buses not far from Tel Aviv, um, killing seven passengers. That was the beginning of the war. And from then on, a, a, a war um, um, engulfed Palestine, Israel, um, which ended in 1949. The war must be seen and was um, um, carried out in two stages. It can be divided sharply into two very definite stages, both of which were part of the 48th War. One was an intercommunal civil war, if you like, between the two communities living in Palestine, the Jews and the Arabs of Palestine, fighting each other from November 47 until May 1948. Um, the war, that part of the war, that civil war part of the 48th War, ended in the defeat of the Palestinians and the beginning of a creation of a refugee problem among them. Uh, this this was followed by Israel's declaration of independence in, in May, on the 14th of May 1948 and the invasion and attack on Israel by Arab armies from outside, Syria's army, Egypt's army, Iraq's army and Jordan's army crossing into Palestine and essentially attacking the Jewish state in, uh, which had just declared itself a state uh, and that war or that part of the war lasted from in the middle of May 1948 until January uh, 1949, if you like, until July 49, formally, when the last of the armistice agreements was signed between Israel and the invading Arab states. Occasionally, you will find in Palestinian propaganda that um, the war of 1948 began on the 15th of May with the Arab invasion, the pan-Arab invasion. Uh, but actually the war began half a year earlier when the Palestinian Arab community assaulted the Jewish community in Palestine. Some, something like 17 or 1800 Israelis or Jews living in Palestine were killed in that first phase of the war uh, and several thousand Palestinian Arabs died in that first phase of the war before the Arab armies from outside invaded the country at all. Uh, the second stage of the war uh, cost another more or less 4,000 Israeli lives and thousands of Palestinian, Egyptian, Syrian, and Jordanian lives. Um, um, but that there were two distinct stages, and both of them were parts of a war. The war did not begin on the 15th of May. Now, I'd like to make, talk about several aspects of the war. Um, and, and I'm doing this, I suppose, in the wake of writing a book called 1948, which is a general history of the war. This is after having done studies previously of various aspects of 48 and other years, uh, including, uh, as was mentioned, the evolution or the emergence of a Palestinian refugee problem. <coughs> Until now, it has been 
thought that the war was, and this you'll find in most history books which refer to the war even if they don't go very deeply into it, the war was regarded, has been regarded essentially as a political territorial conflict between two national movements, which it of course was. It was an unusually unique um, a, a political war, territorial war, in the sense that usually wars between nation states or national movements over territory are usually about the borderlands between two different national movements. Uh, Alsace-Lorraine, given France and German interest in those provinces and fighting over those borderlands. This was a unique national war, a political territorial war, in the sense that it was over the whole of Palestine, both sides claiming the whole territory, not some little part here or there or some borderland, but the whole of the territory um, um, was defined by the Arab side certainly as theirs and theirs alone, and by the Jews as theirs, but they were willing to compromise over part of it, but uh, the war was fought essentially because, as I say, the Arabs demanded all of it, um, uh, over the whole of the country and remains incidentally to this day a conflict not over borderlands uh, which some of you might imagine but over the whole uh, country itself. But in addition to being a political territorial war um, I discovered from looking at the documents on 1948 that the war was also a religious and cultural war between if you like representatives or outposts or agents of uh, two different cultures and civilizations. Certainly from the Arab side, the war was waged as a jihad. In addition to being a political territorial war of the more common variety we know of, uh, uh, which engulfed Europe at various uh, places in various at various times. But it was also a religious war, and from the Muslim Arab side, it was seen as an Islamic jihad. On the 2nd of December, 1947, 2nd of December 1947, three days after the shooting began, the ulama of Al-Azhar University, that's the wise religious authorities of the um, 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 uni oldest university in the Arab world and probably the most important authority in the Sunni Arab world, declared jihad, a, a pan-Muslim jihad uh, calling for mobilization of Muslims around the Muslim world to fight against the emergent Jewish state in Palestine. They repeated these calls for jihad, this fatwa calling for a jihad um, uh, every few months, and these calls were also echoed by uh, priests and ulama in various parts of the Arab world. It wasn't just Muslim Arabs, in fact, who saw that what was being undertaken in Palestine was a jihad. There was a Christian a, a Arab um, a woman called Matiel Moranim, who had um, emigrated from, thank you, who had emigrated from Lebanon and married a Palestinian in Jerusalem, um, and she headed this branch of the Arab Higher Committee the women's branch of the Arab Higher Committee, the Arab Higher Committee being the ruling body, more or less, of the Palestinian Arab community, that body led by Khajamin al-Husseini, who was the leader, if you like, of the national movement, the Palestinian national movement. This lady, Muranam, early in 1948, was interviewed and said in this interview, the UN decision for partitioning Palestine and establishing in it a Jewish state has united all Arabs as they have never been united before, not even against the Crusaders. 
A Jewish state has no chance to survive now that holy war has been declared. All the Jews will eventually be, ma be, be massacred. We're talking about a Maronite woman from Lebanon who had moved to Palestine. D seeing what was happening and saying this is jihad, this is a holy war from the Arab perspective. Hassan al-Banna, the head of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, um, an organization which has come into um, its own and uh, is topical uh, in this day as well. Hassan al-Banna, who headed the, uh, founded and headed the Muslim Brotherhood, put it this way, Palestine occupies a spiritual holy place which is above abstract nationalist feeling. In it, we have the blessed breeze of Jerusalem and the blessings of the prophets and their disciples. Um, for him, for devout Muslims, this was seen as a holy war. Uh, we have echoes of it um, in speeches by various Arab leaders. Not all of them said this is a holy war, but some of them echoed it in various ways. King Abdullah was probably the most moderate, the head of uh, the Kingdom of Jordan, the most moderate of the Arab leaders, uh, uh, sending his troops across the Jordan into Palestine eventually to fight the Jews. Um, uh, said, um, uh, uh, you are either going to take part in a great enterprise or you will come back as Shahid, as Shuhada, dead martyrs in this uh, fight. And as I say, he was the least of the, um, at least extreme of the um, Arab leaders. It was seen by many Arabs. It's impossible, of course, given that the Arabs maintain um, a closure on all of their archives. What we have, what they have in their archives, we don't know. Maybe they kept nothing. Maybe they kept a lot. We don't know what's in the archives. But essentially, Arab archives remain closed, so we can't actually get all the uh, documentation and the information about how they saw the leadership, the, the officials, the generals, how they saw the war. But from the smattering of documentation, which I've seen on the war from various sources relating to the Arab world, uh, many people regarded it as a jihad in addition to being a political war, as I said, between two national movements. Another subject which is interesting, and which I looked at, of course, in the book on 48, was the war aims, and it's a, it's a controversial subject, was the war aims of the two sides. Or if you like, there's more than two sides in this war because it involves the Palestinian Arab community, the Palestinian Jewish community, and then the state of Israel and the variety of Arab states who attacked it. So we have to look at the two halves of the war, the civil war half and then the second half, the conventional war between the states in terms of war aims. Well, the Israeli side is fairly simple. Or the Jewish side is fairly simple. The Jews, from the beginning, both in the civil war and in the war uh, between the states which began with the Arab invasion of May 1948, their essential war aim was survival. They wanted the Jewish community in Palestine to weather the storm, both of civil war and of conventional war, to survive and establish their state. These were the, this was the main aim of the Jewish community. To it accrued in the course of the civil war, in the course of the first months of the civil war, Two additional aims, <clears throat> one of which is uh, subject to controversy and one of which, which is clear. One, the clear one, the additional aim which is clear as one of the war aims of the Jewish side uh, and its military body, uh, the main military body, the Haganah, 
From March, April 1948, in other words, three or four months into the Civil War, the Jewish side adopted a second war aim, which was to expand the borders of the Jewish state to be to include additional territory. And uh, we can see that, uh, um, I can point it out on the map, if you look at the three, um, the three bright areas which constituted the Jewish state according to the UN partition map, and the three dark areas, of course, are the three chunks of territory allotted for Palestinian Arab statehood. The Jewish state, or the Jewish forces and leadership, from March, April, more or less, 1948, three months, four months into the Civil War, wanted to expand the territory allotted by the United Nations to um, their state, to their sovereignty. Um, one principal area they were interested in was Jewish Jerusalem, the western half of the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem had been allotted by the United Nations for an international trusteeship regime, not for Arab or Jewish sovereignty, but for an international body to control it. The Jews said they have 100,000 people in Jerusalem, which was a full sixth of the Jewish community in Palestine. It numbered 630,000 at the beginning of the war. The Arabs numbered 1.3 million at the beginning of the war. The Jews said 100,000 of our population are stuck in West Jerusalem in, in, in a, and besieged, in fact, a, by Arab territory and Arab militiamen, and we want to add that to our territory to make it also the capital of our territory. In addition, the Jews were interested in adding Western Galilee, this area along the coast leading from Haifa or Acre northwards to the Lebanese border. It had this, a cluster of Jewish settlements in it. The Jews were interested in adding that territory also beyond what the United Nations had allocated to the territory of the Jewish state in, in and one third area, somewhere between Bethlehem and uh, Hebron, um, uh, was a cluster of Jewish settlements called the Etzion Block. Uh, again, four settlements. The Jews wanted to add that territory, if possible, to the Jewish state. Um, uh, the Jews reasoned, we accepted the UN partition plan. Uh, the Arabs violated it and went to war to frustrate its implementation. Once the Arabs began the war, you act as you do in war. We will take more territory than we uh, were allotted if we can just do it, especially those areas with, addition, with Jewish, um, um, large concentrations of Jewish population. Um, so this was a second war aim on the Jewish side, uh, which was added to the initial war aim uh, of simple survival. A third war aim, and this is a controversial, is controversial among Israeli historians, most of them, many of them, not most, many of them don't accept it as one of the Jewish war aims, but my belief is that it became in some vague way a war aim, was to reduce the number of Arabs in the Jewish state to be. The, Jew, the Arabs had not accepted a partition, had not accepted Jewish statehood. They were supposed to, a large number of them were supposed to be a minority in the Jewish state when it came into being in May 1948. They refused to become a loyal minority in that state. They were fighting against that state's creation. Um, uh, they cannot le uh, remain in the Jewish state uh, because we, they will be a fifth column. And so accrued, as I say, a third element in terms of Jewish war aims in the war, which was to reduce the number, if you like, to expel part of the Palestinian population from those areas which were to become a Jewish, sovereign Jewish uh, territory. 
Uh, as I say, this is disputed. There are Israeli historians who say this was never a war aim. The Arabs fled. They were never driven out. There wasn't any policy of driving, driving them out. Uh, and the question of policy is a problem. What exactly is policy? Is it something which a cabinet decides, a prime minister sends down the chain of command, or can it be something which is done by generals without or, uh, um, uh, open, clear uh, orders from high up, uh, from above, in terms of the political echelon? It's, it's a bit uh, problematic, the word policy. But as I say, my uh, uh, feeling is that from April, May, uh, there was a measure of policy or a restricted um, uh, um, expulsion um, of Arabs um, uh, um, from the areas to become the Jewish state. Um, uh, it was never, if you like, let me just add one further word, it was never overall accepted official policy. And one of the proofs of that, quite simply, is that 150,000 Arabs remained in the territory of the Jewish state at the end of the war. And had there been a systematic blanket policy of expulsion, everybody would have been expelled. It would have been quite easy to accomplish that additional um, driving out of another 150,000. That didn't happen. Israel came into being with a population of something like 700,000 Jews. Some tens of thousands were added to those who were there at the start of the war, plus 150,000 Arabs. About 15% of the population was Arab of Israel from uh, its inception and remained so. In today, incidentally, Israel's Arab population remains approximately the same, despite the fact that some three million Jews immigrated from abroad after 1948 to Israel, which uh, shows um, the, the very high Arab birth rates inside Israel. On the Arab side, on the Arab side, the war aims, we have to look at the Arab Higher Committee, the Palestinian Arabs, and here there's a problem because this wasn't the government, the Arab Higher Committee. They dominated the Arab national movement in Palestine, but they weren't voted into power. They were a self-proclaimed body and a, a, they didn't control perhaps all the population of Palestine. There were opposition groups to them, but nonetheless, they more or less set the agenda, but they weren't the government, so they didn't produce a archival material documentation which can tell us exactly what they were thinking along each stage of the war from November 47 until 1948. What were their war aims? We don't really know in terms of what we normally rely on, which is real documentation. We have here and there letters. We have here and there statements by various Arab higher committee officials. Um, but it's rather vague. The Jews interpreted what the Palestinian Arabs were doing as an effort to, des to destroy their community and perhaps genocidally to destroy them, the Jewish community in Palestine, which was gen genuine fear three years after the Holocaust that this is what the Arabs of Palestine intended for the Jews of Palestine. But this is not documented and is not well documented at all in terms of the Arab leadership in Palestine. They very rarely uh, used genocidal terms. It's very and I, I've gone through the material which exists, uh, almost never do they speak about destroying the Jewish community in Palestine. They talk about destroying Zionism. It might be a code word, but they talked about destroying Zionism, preventing the Jewish state from emerging. They don't, don't talk genocidally. They do talk, if you like, politicidally. In other words, to prevent the, the emergence of a polity, a Jewish polity, in the country. The second part of the war, in terms of war aims, and here we're talking about a cluster of Arab states and the Jewish state. Again, the Jewish state is simple, to survive and, as I say, to expand its territory. Uh, and this is what, in fact, happened. Israel 
emerged according to the United Nations plan with 6,000, should have been 6,000 square miles. By the end of the 48 war, by 1949, Israel had 8,000 square miles. So it had, in fact, added territory to what the United Nations had allocated. Um, and had survived, which, as I say, was the principal aim. Um, it's more complicated to know what exactly was in the minds of the Arab leaders, the King Farouk of uh, uh, Syria, uh, uh, the regent in Iraq, uh, King uh, Abdullah in Jordan, uh, the, the president in Syria. Uh, um, it's more complicated, as I say, partly because we just don't have the documentation books that Arab governments do not open their records as democratic governments do to official, to uh, the, the, the um, um, view of um, historians or to their own publics um, in general. Um, we can uh, deduce certain things about Arab policy from statements they made in various places, discussions with diplomats, uh, radio uh, announcements, and so on. And to the extent it is possible, the Arab war aims in 1948, when in the invasion of Palestine, and here I'm talking about uh, Syria, Egypt, and Iraq, um, was to at least harm the Jewish state, maybe to eat away chunks of the Jewish state, in other words, to conquer parts of the Jewish state. Um, uh, perhaps they intended to conquer all of it and to completely destroy the Jewish state, but we don't know that for a fact because they didn't announce that as their intention. Were their aims genocidal? Did they aim to conquer the state of Israel, Tel Aviv, Haifa, and so on, and then to destroy the population? We don't know that either, because there were no genocidal eh, or verifiable genocidal statements by Arab leaders to this effect. We, we intend to invade Palestine and kill all the Jews. Nobody said that. Nobody said that. There are one or two quotes, one of which I found is um, at least untraceable. You don't know where it comes from which emerges in the 1950s uh, relating to um, um, Abdul Rahman Azam, the, the um, Secretary General of the Arab League, an important figure in the Arab coalition. But, but that statement, as I say, is unverifiable. He said, according to that statement, there will be a, a, a massacre as the Mongolians had conducted in Baghdad in the 13th century. But uh, as I say, this is not um, a necessarily a true quote. And um, so we don't know that. Certainly they intended great harm to the Jewish state, perhaps completely to nip it in the bud, to frustrate its emergence as a state. This uh, seems to be very clear. But let me add a caveat here, which I haven't yet mentioned, and I've talked about the Arab states in a cluster. There was a fly in the ointment on the Arab side, among the Arab states, the Arab coalition which invaded Palestine. And that fly in the ointment was King Abdullah of Jordan. He, from the beginning, understood the Jews are too strong. They will not be defeated by a coalition of Arab states, not by the Palestinians for sure, and also not by the Arab states who invade. He joined the coalition because he felt he must, as Hussein incidentally did in 1967, his grandson. He had to because otherwise he would have been, been toppled by popular demand. There was popular demand driving the Arab leaders to invade Palestine. But he limited his war aims, whatever he announced publicly, you have to look at the way his armies marched, and you can understand uh, that he limited his war aims essentially to occupying this territory here, which is more or less the West Bank, and perhaps East Jerusalem. And not to, uh, this is the area, of course, adjacent to the border of Jordan, 
um, to add the West Bank and, if possible, East Jerusalem to the territory of Jordan, but not to attack the Jewish state. And in fact, his armies, after crossing the Jordan, fanned out in Ramallah, up here, down to um, a Latrun, a Lida and Ramle, this area here, then occupied East Jerusalem uh, and ended up fighting the Jews in bitter battles in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem, especially at Latrun, which dominated the Tel Aviv-Jerusalem or West Jerusalem road. Um, but he didn't invade Jewish territory. He took over territory assigned by the United Nations for Palestinian Arab statehood. He didn't attack the Jews in their territory. He went to Latrun, which was part of the Palestinian Arab state area. He went to Lidl and Ramle, again, part of the Palestinian area. And he went to East Jerusalem in violation, of course, of the United Nations decision, which was that Jerusalem, all of it, should be part of an international area. They ended up fighting the Jews and Abdallah eh, because each suspected the other of um, eh, nefarious uh, schemes. Uh, the Jews suspected that Abdallah was interested in uh, besieging West Jerusalem and eventually conquering Jewish West Jerusalem. Um, um, the Arabs suspected the Jews of wanting to take, probably quite correctly, incidentally, the first part wasn't correct, but the Jews suspected, um, uh, the Arabs, sorry, suspected Abdallah, uh, the Jews of wanting to conquer East Jerusalem, which they did want to do. Um, uh, and so battles emerged between the two sides. But Jordan, in terms of war aims, did not aim to destroy the Jewish state or even attack the Jewish state in its invasion of Palestine, simply to grab, take hold of part of a chunk of Palestine and incorporated into Jordan, which it subsequently, of course, did. Another interesting aspect of the war is the balance of forces between the two sides. And it has an underlying political and moral import in the sense that the weaker side is normally viewed as an underdog, and each side in this conflict, especially between the Palestinians and Israelis, or Jews in Palestine at the time, wanted to see itself or be present itself as the underdog, the other side being um, the stronger side. Uh, and uh, the Jewish uh, um, and later Israeli um, um, presentation of their situation managed to take hold in the West and the Jews were viewed, and Israel was viewed subsequently as the underdog in this battle against the Palestinians and subsequently against the Arab states, um, but wrongly, um, and, there, and therefore the side deserving of sympathy of the world community. Looking at the actual documentation on the Israeli side, one sees that this picture is a bit distorted. Um, uh, and here it's, it's, it's complex because you have to look at what actually makes up strength of a community. What, is the comp what are the components which make, up, make one side strong and one side weak? Is it only the number of troops you have, the number of weapons, the type of weapons, or do you have to take into account other factors like morale, um, money, that is how much monetary reserves you have with which, which you can later buy arms and ammunition. Ammunition stocks are very important. You can have 50 tanks, but if you have three shells per tank and you use the three shells, the tanks are pieces of steel. They're not weapons. The same applies to aircraft. If you haven't got good pilots to fly them, as the Arabs didn't, uh, you will lose even if you have 10 times more aircraft, which the Arabs had, than the Jews had. The Jews had no 
a combat aircraft on the 15th of May. They gradually bought some and shipped them over to Palestine. They had 12 combat aircraft flying in October 1948, but these 12 aircraft in October 1948 were able to fly 240 missions, whereas the Egyptian Air Force with 70 combat aircraft was able to fly about 50 missions in October 1948. No pilots, no um, uh, spare parts, no good ground crews, etc. So in other words, the actual numbers of how many aircraft each side has are not completely relevant. They're not irrelevant, but they're not, they don't describe, give you the whole picture. Money is, as I said, very important. The Jews were able in the course of the war to purchase large amounts of ammunition and eventually weaponry and bring it across the oceans to Israel and were able to win the wars with the aid of this weaponry, whereas the Arab governments were all poor um, um, and were unable and didn't know also how to clandestinely against United Nations embargoes bring in weaponry which they managed to buy. So uh, there's all sorts of factors here and what you end up with is essentially a Jewish side which is probably stronger, certainly in terms of, of organization, stronger than the Palestinian Arabs, though the Palestinian Arabs outnumber the Jews in the civil war two to one. The Arab armies are stronger than the Jew Jewish army on the 15th of May 1948 when they invade the country, but gradually the, the gap closes and then the Jews overtake the Arab armies in terms of weaponry and numbers eh, and capabilities and that is why the war ended as it did. Let me deal briefly with one other subject. Yeah. Um, which is the refugee problem, which I'm not going to go into at length now, not the Arab refugee problem, which if you like, certainly you can ask questions about, and it's something I've spent years studying, so I do know something about it. Um, but uh, the war created, and this is something which you probably, or many of you haven't given a mind to, the war created two refugee problems. Some 700,000 Arabs were displaced from their homes in the course of the war, ending up in the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria, some 700,000 all told, a third outside the country, two-thirds inside the West Bank and Gaza, inside the country. But the war also created a Jewish refugee problem. The Jewish communities in the Arab world, which were large communities, tens of thousands in Egypt and Syria, 100,000 plus in Iraq, several hundred thousand in the Maghreb, altogether some six to seven hundred thousand people, in fact, fairly similar to the number of Arab refugees created. All these communities from 1948 on were intimidated and harassed into flight and departed the Arab world as a result partly of the 48 war. The 48 war led the Arab states to suspect these communities of pro-Zionist sympathies. Most of them weren't Zionists and weren't interested in Jewish nationalism, but nonetheless they were harassed and intimidated into flight. Some of them were actually expelled by Arab governments as from Egypt in 1956. And over the decade and a half, two decades following the 48 war, a large Jewish refugee problem was created. But you don't hear of the Jewish refugee problem for one very simple reason. There is no Jewish refugee problem because the Jewish refugees were absorbed, many in Israel and in other places like Britain and France over the decades. So there is no Jewish refugee problem. As incidentally, there is no Sudeten refugee problem, a German Sudeten refugee problem. They were expelled by the Allies in 1945 from Czechoslovakia. Um, and they simply were absorbed in Germany, like Volga Germans, Romanian Germans, and so on. And there is no German refugee problem because they were absorbed. There is an Arab refugee problem, Palestinian Arab refugee problem, because they were not absorbed uh, in the Arab countries. We can go into why this happened and 
Um, well, what happened, Israel also didn't allow them back. This is part of the story. Um, but uh, 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 they were not absorbed elsewhere. So there is a vast Arab refugee problem. Shall I talk more? Shall we open it up? Um, we've done the half hour. So shall we open it up for questions? Unless there's any concluding comments you want to make? Well, a subject which always, uh, let me, five more minutes. Once more. Two minutes. (laughs) One further theme which is of interest um, worldwide and often very interesting to propagandists is the subject of atrocities in the 48 war. All wars generate atrocities. All wars. Especially wars which involve civilian communities, civil wars. By and large, the 48 war produced very few civilian atrocities and massacres. Very few. Altogether, my estimate is that eight to 900 Palestinians in a war which lasted for over a year were massacred or murdered by Jews, people outside uh, the war zone or in a war zone which had been overtaken by Jews and then deliberately killed after the event in a series of massacres. Eight to 900 Palestinians were killed in this way in the 48 war, in a war which the Arabs had started and forced upon the Yishuv, upon the Jewish community in Palestine. Some two to three hundred Jews were massacred by Arabs during the war of 48. Two to three hundred Jews were massacred by Arabs in the 48 war. And the reason for the disparity in numbers is really very simple. It's not because the Jews are more evil. It is because the Jews in the course of the war overran and conquered 400 Palestinian villages and towns. In fact, having at their mercy large numbers of Arab civilians, of whom, as I say, eight to 900 civilians and prisoners of war were killed altogether. The Arabs in the course of the war of 1948, the Palestinian Arab militias and the Arab states' armies in the course of the war, conquered altogether a a dozen, about a dozen, Jewish settlements. The Palestinian uh, militias conquered no Jewish settlements, and the Arab armies managed to conquer about a dozen Jewish settlements in the course of the war. They had very few Jews at their mercy, therefore could actually carry out very few atrocities and massacres. That's really the reason. But I think the subject should be put also in perspective. In the war in Bosnia, I think it's 1994, Eight to 9,000 Muslims were slaughtered in one or two days at Srebrenica. Eight to 9,000 in, in a two-day period. Here I'm talking about a year-long war waged, launched by the other side uh, in terms of the atrocities which occurred uh, as a result of this war. So one should really put this war and its casualties of various sorts, but also the civilian and deliberate civilian casualties and deliberate murder of POWs in this comparative world perspective, and you will emerge with a picture that actually this war, in terms of blood, was not one of the costly wars of the 20th century. Okay, we'll leave it at that. Okay, thank you very much for that very clear lecture. What I'd like to do now, of course, is open it up for questions. And what I'd like to do is take them in groups of three, please. So there's a gentleman over there in the third row. And um, the gentleman there on the end of that row. And the lady here. Uh, yeah. 
Uh, thanks, Professor Morris. Does your book does your book include anything about the links between um, Hajjamin al Husseini, the Mufti, and um, and Hitler and the Nazis? Are those kinds of links? Okay, and we'll take the other two questions. As well. Hi. Um, my question is regarding the uh, Atalena moment that Israel had uh, when the uh, Haganah fired on the Ogun um, and essentially sort of asserted their, uh, uh, their authority as, as one state and one military. And your thoughts on perhaps that, uh, that the Palestinians have never had that moment themselves and what implications that might be when they, when they hopefully do. And then the lady... Hi, I was interested in the fact that you spoke at some length about the Muslim Jihad um, that was declared and I wasn't quite sure that I got the point that you were making because um, while I certainly agree that uh, certain elements of the Muslim population around the world did declare Jihad and that was one of the aspects of the war, you didn't mention the fact that from a Jewish perspective it was also clearly a holy war in the sense that Zionism is motivated by the desire for a Jewish homeland. Okay, can we take those questions, please? Okay, um, I didn't mention Zion. I said, in fact, from the Arab side, it was seen as a jihad by some people, uh, some of the leaders, and perhaps some of the population. We don't have the documentation, the full documentation. This is certainly something, incidentally, which has to be investigated much more thoroughly than I've done. You have to look at newspapers around the Maghreb, in Yemen, in Iraq, something which I have not done to fully comprehend how deep, or was it as deep as I suspect it was, uh, in terms of the emotion driving that war. Um, on the Zionist side, you have it wrong. Today, you have a large Zionist community which is religious and driven by religious messianism, uh, um, uh, religious impulses, and so on. This wasn't true in 1948. The Jewish Zionist religious community was very, very small. It was predominantly the Zionist community in Palestine, a socialist community who had rejected thoroughly the existence of God and God's um, uh, delving in the uh, affairs of ma man. Um, and and um, uh, so one finds nothing at all, basically, of a jihadi element, a holy war element on the Jewish side. Um, it was a secular movement. It was driven by secular concerns, and as I say, mainly by the concern of survival, perhaps some expansionism as well down the road, not by religion. You can't compare the two sides in this, but it, you're welcome to do research on the Zionist side to investigate whether what I'm telling you is correct or not. The archives are open. The other two questions, uh, Professor Morris. The first uh, right, sorry, sorry, yeah. sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, kind of lost. My it. mind gets yes. wanders. Yes, yes. Hajjamin al Husseini. Look, the book on forty-eight deals with forty-eight. I don't go into the in depth into Hajjamin al Husseini's history, the leader of the Palestine National Movement uh, from thirty-six to forty-eight. Uh, I probably mentioned that he had spent his war years enjoying life in Berlin, however much one could enjoy life in Berlin between 1941 and 1945, uh, growingly probably less so. But, but um, um, he did work for the Nazis. He raised uh, 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 troops 
for the Nazi war machine. He knew about the Holocaust. I don't say he was one of the perpetrators, but uh, he was probably quite happy that it was taking place. One of his great friends was, of course, Heinrich Himmler. And this, of course, uh, 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 later rebounded, redounded against the, the Palestinian national movement in the years 45 onwards, when the world community in some way identified the leadership of the Palestinian national movement uh, with sympathy for the Nazis. Um, and there was some sympathy. Hajamin Husseini was an anti-Semite. And uh, this is clear from his writings. I'm not saying he was just an anti-Zionist. He hated Jews. Jews were evil. Um, Altalena. In, in June 1948, I'll say it very briefly, in June, there were three Zionist military organizations in the run-up to the 48 war. The major one, which had 35,000 members, was the Haganah, which changed its name to the IDF in June 1948. It became the Israel Defense Forces, the Israeli army. There were two small groups in addition to that, military groups, which were aligned in some way to the right wing of Zionism. The IZL, or the Irgun, as the British called it, which had something like 3,000 members as compared to 35,000 in the Haganah, and an even smaller splinter group made up of commies and right-wingers, it merged the two extremes, uh, who hated imperialism, and that was the basis for their juncture, um, um, uh, uh, which had 500 members. Um, in, by June 1948, Ben-Gurion, who led the Zionist community, was Prime Minister of Israel, and the head of the Haganah, he was Defense Minister as well, said there can't be three different military organizations in this one country. That's not the way countries operate. And he told them to lay down arms. The uh, Irgun brought in a ship full of arms and some immigrants from France called the Altalena. The ship was called the Altalena. They refused to give the, uh, hand over all the arms to the Haganah, and uh, uh, Ben-Gurion ordered uh, his troops, the Haganah, the IDF, to shell that boat, and it sank it, the Altalena, uh, offshore outside Tel Aviv, Tel Aviv's population watching the shelling. And this was later decried by the Israeli right as an act of stabbing in the back. The, the socialists had killed these poor um, right-wing um, uh, right militiamen and so on. And it was held, uh, Ben-Gurion was seen as some sort of murderer for many years by the right-wing on account of this. Now this does in some way bring up the issue of the Palestinians who've had a whole series of military organizations, guerrilla organizations, terrorist organizations, whatever you want to call them, which have never actually been able to coalesce and form one army, partly because they never became a state. We're here talking about Israel, which had become a state in, by June 1948. So you do have Hamas with its, its militia, you have the Fatah with their own militias, and so on, and this has been something of a problem for Palestinian nations building um, since the inception of the Palestinian National Movement. Yeah. Okay, we'll take um, another three. There's a lady in the back corner there then. Yes, that's you, yes, waving. And then there's a gentleman there on the aisle uh, with a beard. It's, yes, gentleman in the purple colored shirt with a beard. And um, also a gentleman down here um, in the, that's you, yes, with the, in the shirt. Okay, we'll take this question first then. Nineteen 
So what's the question? What's the question? Take the, the other gentleman on the aisle, we'll take these in threes, so that up there, yes, in the kind of purpley coloured chart, pretty hopeless with colours, I mean, it's a bit purple, isn't it? The gentleman up there on the aisle, yes. I'm, I'm trying to relate your presentation with the present day, the, the tragedy that's continued for 60, 70 years, and yet you, you've, you've focused on an encapsulated period, and it's not clear why and how that has a bearing on the present. You presented the Jewish aspirations and one can see why they were so desperate for homeland. You only have to look at the museums in um, Tel Aviv, I think, or Jerusalem. Um, well, I've lost it for the moment. Um, <laughs> is it it's well, a, it's a it's question it's about the point of history, is it? In yes, other words, and... You, 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 haven't, you, haven't drawn a from that. you haven't drawn a thread from that to the present. And your presentation of the Jews as very much um, embattled as they were, and their need for security as they were right to aspire to. Um, but the, so it's the, the Jews as a protected, attempting to protect themselves, and yet the Palestinians are somehow wild creatures who uh, are out of control and have no and now without dignity. Thank okay, you. and then there was another question down here. Yes, the, the gentleman with the glasses here in the middle with a stripy, kind of stripy shirt, that one, I would call it. Yeah. Um, thanks for uh, drawing attention to the kind of rejectionism that is you know, at the, the heart of the conflict. We mentioned Husseini already. Um, and I just wanted to give you another example of how this kind of continues. Um, I read this recently online. Uh, the Jews are busy killing people and sharing power is alien to the Jewish mentality. It seems like these kinds of appalling sentiments just you know, keep on going. Okay, so, well, there's a theme here which is linking the past up to the present, I suppose, to all of these. Well, the Balfour Declaration issued by the British government in, 19, in November 2nd, 1917, simply uh, promised British support for the establishment of a Jewish national home in Palestine, in Palestine, not all of Palestine necessarily, and not necessarily a state, even though this was by implication what Balfour had meant. Um, and you can say that that is the first warrant, international warrant for Jewish statehood uh, after years of the Zionist movement trying to uh, mobilize uh, international support. Um, um, and thereafter, there was a British mandate over Palestine uh, in which the British um, by and large protected the Zionist enterprise and helped it grow and stand on its feet and create a state within a state which was able in fact in 1948, you wanted me to link it to 48, to um, uh, fend off, establish a state with all of the machinery of statehood and fend off various military challenges. Um, th that's all I can say about the Balfour Declaration except give you a whole, whole lecture about the Declaration which is not what you want. Um, Jewish holy war. No, I, I really do believe this is nonsense. 
Jerusalem is, you're right, for many Jews, a holy place. But this isn't what was stressed in 1948, and it isn't what is stressed today. Jerusalem is the capital of the Jewish homeland, the national enterprise of the Jewish people, like London is the capital of the national enterprise of the British people, like Philadelphia and Washington DC are the national capitals of the national enterprise of the American people. And that's what Israelis or Zionists saw throughout the period of Zionism before 1948. And in the 48 war, we want to regain our capital. For some Jews, it was holy. For most Jews at the time, it may have been in some vague way connected to the, the religion which most of them didn't believe in, but it was a national... They didn't. Most Jews in 1948 were atheists or agnostics. Certainly the Zionists were atheists or agnostics, um, by and large. Um, and the word, incidentally, God, unlike in American constitutions or elsewhere, does not appear in the uh, uh, Declaration of Independence, which is Israel's constitution. The word God was deliberately avoided because uh, Ben-Gurion, in framing it, knew that very few people would relate to the, that word. They would think it's nonsense. There is no God, in their view. Um, well, I focused on 1948 because I'm an historian and it interests me. That's why. And, that, that's, and beyond that, it's like 1789, it's like 1917, it's the crucial event in Israeli history, perhaps one of the crucial events in Jewish history, certainly in modern Jewish history, side by side, if you like, with the Holocaust. So it's worthy of, of a, a, a study and a, a so on. Um, I didn't describe the Palestinians as out of control. I described the Palestinian national movement as interested in creating a state of their own in all of Palestine, in not doing what was necessary to create that state, and in not agreeing to a compromise over their demand, thinking it was an unjust a, a, a resolution by the United Nations. They thought that Palestine belonged to its original, what they saw as the original inhabitants. Of course, that goes back only to the seventh century when the Muslims conquered Palestine. Before that, it was full of Christians. Before that, it was full of Jews. So it's a, a problem of right of conquest. But, but, but there were Palestinians living in Palestine in 1947-48. They weren't out of control. They wanted what they believed was their right to hold on to that land and fought the Jews. This is not out of control. They did it poorly. They did it ineffectively, but that's what they were doing, which was fairly understandable. Okay, let's take another three. No, 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 no. we've got a lot of other hands here. We need to bring people in. There's too many hands. No, the, the lady down the front here, yes. The first one here, yes, down, down here in the third row. And then uh, the gentleman on the aisle over there with the glasses on. And finally, uh, this gentleman here in the uh, second row, yes, you with the slightly checky colored shirt, okay. Um, you mentioned that the number of Palestinians killed in 1948 was low in comparison to the number of uh, Muslims killed in Srebrenica. But by making that comparison, surely you're not making the claim that the Palestinians were killed in Palestine because they were Muslim or Christian. I'm sure you're not making that assumption. Um, the question is in regard to your comments on jihad. Um, you mentioned three organizations uh, or bodies, the Al-Azhar University, uh, the female wing of the Arab Higher Committee and the Muslim Brotherhood. Could you perhaps share your, um, what, you've, you know, sort of what your understanding, in, understanding is on 
what authority those organizations hold within the Muslim community around the world and in particular within the, um, within the Arab world. Okay, thanks for that. And the, other, the next one was the gentleman over here in the stripy shirt. Thank you. Um, to what extent do you think there would have been a willingness among the, the Arab states and or the Palestinians after 1948 to negotiate some kind of peace deal uh, if Israel had been interested in doing so? Okay, and then the oh, final I, I, one. I didn't catch that. Sorry. Uh, yeah, I'm asking about the, the extent to which uh, the surrounding Arab countries and possibly the Palestinians would have been willing to negotiate a peace deal with Israel after 1948. Okay. And then the gentleman here in the checky shirt. Thank you. Hi there. You spoke about compromise again. Um, can I just say it's, it's a little bit... Um, can we assume it's a lot easier to compromise about something when it's taken away from you? You take something away from somebody and then you offer them compromise. Back then, what we were talking about, the land of Palestine, it was the Palestinians, so it was easy for the, for the, for the Jewish people to offer compromise. Like the French come into Britain, take part of Britain, and then offer the British some compromise. Um, what I want to... What I want to get to, it, because it seemed to me that's the, the continuous attitude of the government of Israel with the West Bank. They're still continuing to take lands away from the Palestinians today, and then they offer them compromise. If we continue, to, if we continue on these lines, mm. however, so the can we... The question is about willingness to compromise. That, that, I'm just going to get... If we continue with that attitude, how can we ever reach peace? Okay. Israel, continue with that attitude. Do you want to take those three? Sure, sure. Mm. Look, as I said, I've scratched the surface in terms of research about the jihadi component of the 1948 war. To do it properly, you have to look across the Arab world at newspapers. Perhaps some of them will carry sermons from the uh, various mosques, uh, the ulama declarations in the, the various places, and all sorts of statements by Arab leaders. Uh, which I haven't done thoroughly. I've touched the subject, um, uh, and it requires more research. I've thrown it out that from what I've seen, it's something which exists there and is a reality, but how deep a reality, how wide a reality, has to be more thoroughly investigated than I've done or I've presented here. The ulama of El Hazar University remains, and certainly was in 1948, one of the chief authorities in the Sunni Arab world. In the majority of the Muslim world, uh, the word of the ulama, the wise religious uh, uh, authorities, um, uh, leaders um, in Al-Azhar, uh, are the most important, perhaps next to, or si today side by side with uh, the, the um, Sheikh of Mecca, uh, are the most important uh, um, um, callers, they call judgment, uh, call, uh, um, adjudicators, uh, uh, pastors of what should and shouldn't be done in the Sunni Arab world. What I'm saying is that you can find traces of what they passed, declared on the 2nd of December 47, elsewhere in the Arab world as well, including among the leadership. It's true, we're not talking about democracies, we don't know what the people thought, the newspapers are not free, there aren't that many newspapers, 90% of the population of the Arab world at the time is illiterate, more or less, um, so you don't really know what the masses are thinking, but to the extent that one knows of what was going on in the higher echelons, eh, many people took what was happening in 47-48, understood it as a holy war. 
Now, peace after 1948, it's a very good subject, um, which has been investigated by a number of people. Um, Avi Schleim wrote a book, part of which is devoted, Collusion Across the Jordan, which is devoted to the peace feelers between various parties and Israel in the wake of the 48 war. Um, what he found um, uh, was that both sides were recalcitrant, were unwilling to make the compromises necessary for peace. It's a judgment call because we don't really have, again, the Arab archives. We don't know how sincere what overtures were made from the Arab side were. We just know what diplomats heard from Arab leaders, what Israeli leaders in some way heard from Arab leaders, and what the Israeli leaders were saying among themselves. That we know. And what you had was a peace process between 48 and 5051 between Israel and Abdullah of Transjordan. Uh, eventually, they agreed or semi-agreed to a five-year non-belligerency pact, but Abdullah was unable to persuade his cabinet to sign it. And that's how the talks essentially ended. Um, no full peace agreement, no even partial peace agreement or non-belligerency agreement, no agreement, and then Palestinian gunmen assassinated Abdullah. Um, uh, so that ended that uh, chapter. There were peace contacts between Israeli diplomats and Egyptian diplomats, 48-51, and in fact subsequently, even after the Nasser Revolution of 1952, they came to nothing. The Egyptians essentially were demanding that Israel give up the Sinai Peninsula, uh, sorry, the Negev Desert, this part of the country, uh, and allow back all the Palestinian refugees in exchange, perhaps, for some form of agreement, not necessarily a full peace agreement. Israel refused to do that. The uh, um, contacts were never ever held at a very high level. It was by sort of semi-middle um, middle level diplomats in, pa in Paris on the <laughs> Egyptian side. Um, these contacts never really amounted to very much and not a serious negotiation. And still less dramatic were the contacts through third parties between Syria and Israel after 1948. In 1949, uh, there was a, a ruler who'd taken over in a coup d'etat in March 1949, a man called Hosni Zaim, and was eventually assassinated and overthrown himself in August 1949. During the four months, or whatever number of months that is, he was actually in charge in Damascus. He made some overtures saying he's willing to reach peace with Israel if Israel gives him half of the Sea of Galilee, the major Israeli water resource, the only one in fact, um, half of the Sea of Galilee and um, uh, the land lying east of the Sea of Galilee, which is Israeli owned also, this area here, um, and he would absorb some of the Palestinian refugees, 250,000, he said. Um, but again, all of this was third party contacts and there was a the circumstances of the offer were not clear. Ben-Gurion said, sure, let's talk peace, but let's first sign an armistice agreement between the two countries first, with Syria withdrawing the troops it actually had west of the Jordan River back to Syria, um, withdrawing from the area they'd taken in the invasion. Then we can discuss peace. And as I say, Hosni Zaim was murdered uh, fairly uh, shortly after making this overture. Nothing came of this either. Uh, the Palestinians had no representation in 48-49. They were shattered as a society. They had no leadership. Khaj Amin al-Husseini was discredited. The Arab Higher Committee no longer existed. No Palestinians made any real peace offers because they represented nobody. There was nobody representing them, so it wasn't a realistic possibility. Um, the judgment of one Israeli historian, which is probably correct, uh, is that the Arab side, after the humiliating defeat of 1948, was unwilling to make peace uh, with the Israelis. Perhaps it would take an Arab victory or something 
seeming like a narrow victory uh, for the Arabs in terms of psychology to be able to make peace at last with the Israelis. And in some ways, this is what happened between Egypt and Israel after the 1973 war. Certainly, the Israelis displayed a certain hard line in terms of making concessions after they'd been attacked by the Arab states and Arab armies in 1948 and 49. They weren't willing to give up territory in exchange for peace. Only after 67, when they had territory, they could give in exchange for peace is exactly what they did. Gave up Sinai for peace with Egypt. <coughs> gave up uh, um, or wanted to, or said they would give up some of the West Bank for peace with uh, uh, Jordan. Um, offered the Golan Heights to Syria in exchange for peace. The Syrians weren't interested. Okay, we'll take another three. I think I should bring some people in from the back who have been slightly underrepresented. So the gentleman right out in the back corner there with the... You just, I think you just did about compromise. No, no, I, no, no, I didn't. He's right. Did you not? No, 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 I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Please, come back there. Yeah. There's a point to what you say. There's a point to what you say. It's certainly easier to compromise after you've taken a chunk of territory and then you say, okay, I'll give some of it back. Let's make peace together. Um, but that's how the world works. The world works in terms of uh, the Muslims conquered Palestine in the 7th century. Whether it was just or unjust, it was a conquest. The Jews conquered parts of Palestine in 1948. Um, uh, just, unjust, that's what happened. And uh, uh, politicians are supposed to work within the framework of reality, reach agreements, make compromises, give up things. The Jews wanted all of Palestine. They eventually understood 1937, 1947, that they couldn't have all of Palestine. As it's turned out, and because the Palestinians rejected the various offers made in which they would have had most of Palestine or a large part of Palestine, they are ending up after 67 with the possibility of 21% of Palestine. If they continue to reject that, who knows what will happen. Okay, and then, then the gentleman far back corner there, again, a, kind of a perfectly coloured shirt in the far back corner. And then, um, let's see, the lady down here then, on the second row, and um, the gentleman right out in the middle there with the jacket on, with his hand right up. That's, that's you, yes, you're looking behind you now, it's you, yes, okay. Okay. Um, from your perspective on the past, presumably you have a reasonably informed view of what is possible today and I was wondering what your perception of the possibility of the two-state solution given the continued settler movement uh, is that going to work if it is going to work who is going to define the boundaries and how if it is not going to work what is the alternative thank you okay and then there's a lady down here somewhere in the front was a second yes that's right is that on the mic okay Sorry, I can't hear. I can't hear. Yeah. <coughs> we tap the thing, see if it's working. Let's give it a tap, then we'll leave it. Uh, sorry about that. Um, okay, I'll accept that you're going to secularise the Jews, that you're going to say that perhaps that this is a, it's a secular movement, it's not a, uh, something that you say is a holy thing, yeah? Um, so you're going to say that perhaps to be a Jew, to be Israeli, means like an ethno-linguistic identity, perhaps? something that's based on language and ethnicity and so th therefore you can basically say that what's happening is ethnic cleansing isn't it? Um, then I'd go on to say that you bring in the 7th century just now so why don't we go loads of centuries back and ask well what is the Jewish right to Palestine 
um, you use bi- the Bible, perhaps, you know, that as, as a historical text, which is questionable, considering you're a historian, I'm sure you'll have problems with that. And the fact that, um, it, you know, in Israel, in every single university, there are two history departments, you know, the Jewish history department and the normal history department, because for some reason there has to be that distinction. Um, Uncollegiality you know, is the reason. Well, you know, you know, but, but, you know, I mean, I, at the moment I'm reading a book called uh, The Invention of the Jewish People. I'm finding it incredibly fascinating. The fact that the... Oh, it is fascinating. And... You know, the idea of a, na- a nation, a sorry, question, the idea please. of a nation, what is a nation? The fact that a nation is a, histo- it's a historical movement. It's not something that's, you know, it's uh, like lasting for ages and ages of time, it's, you know, came out, came out of nowhere. It's, it's a historical concept. And so, you know, if you want to remove religion from it and demonize the uh, Palestinians for being Muslim, okay, fine, but you have to be aware that you have come from a religion and that that is the claim, you know, of uh, Israel to having, you know, Jews having Israel. I'm sorry, I'm okay. angry. I'm just really, really annoyed so, all right. by this. So the question's about then about the, the religious... Yeah, that was the question. All right. The, the, the fact that... The, the, okay. The fact that so. it's ethnic cleansing, whether it is ethnic cleansing or not. And the, you know, the rights of Jews to Israel. Okay. That was the question. All right. And who was the last person? I've, it was the gentleman with the jacket out in the middle there. No, just in front of you. You're looking behind you now. Yeah, you. Yes. You. Yes. Have you got a microphone anywhere near you? Anyone to give him a microphone there in the middle? Yes. Um, I'd just like to ask Professor Morris um, one question, but um, just a little bit before that. There seems to be two Professor Morrises, and I'm, I'm not quite sure which one is it we've got. There's a Professor Morris who pre- professes to be a serious historian, and then there's a Professor Morris who gives an interview in Haaretz 2004 and amongst a whole number of quotes, one of them in particular, which I'd now like to ask you about, you said in that quote, and I'm paraphrasing because at the risk of boring everyone, that Palestinians should be caged. I'd like to ask you two things, please. First, do you stand by that remark today? And secondly, if it's Palestinians that are to be caged in the context of that quote, why are you not also calling for the caging of the settlers in Hebron, the white shirts that marched through the Christian and Arab quarters of East Jerusalem only in the last few weeks. Why is it only Palestinians that should be caged? Okay. I think that's... um, Well... Well, in 2004, I did give an interview, um, and the intemperate remarks made in that interview are often quoted by um, various people. Um, but the interview, if you pay attention historically, and that's what we really should do, look at the date, um, took place during the Second Intifada when Palestinian bombs were blowing up in Jewish buses and restaurants more or less on a daily basis, slaughtering Israeli civilians indiscriminately. And at that time, I said, and I was talking about these people, if these are the people who are being sent out of the West Bank, they should be caged and kept hemmed in within the West Bank so that they don't reach these civilian Israeli targets. That's what I meant, and that is exactly the context in which you're quoting out of context the remark. You asked the question, let me finish. I believe that people who indulge in such types of terrorism um, aren't behaving normally. 
they're behaving like people who should be locked up because it's contrary to any principle of morality and um, in my view. Uh, but this is just my view. You may differ on that, uh, certainly. Um, I, yes, I assume it does. Um, how can I say what? Okay, okay, okay. I shouldn't assume anything about your views. Now, let me answer this question over here. Yeah. The Jews, the Palestinians, let me start with the Palestinians. The Palestinians have a right to Palestine because they've been living there for generations. In, in, it's their land. They may not have seen it necessarily as a potential nation state throughout their history, but from the 1920s on, they developed this thing which you call nationalism. In, gradually, eventually, they became nationalists interested in sep separating from Syria and the rest of the wider Arab world and establishing a state of their own as the nation state system came into being in the Middle East. The Jews have a right to Palestine. The Jews have a right to Palestine. I'm, I'm, I'm about to, maybe I didn't phrase that properly, but it's the beginning of a sentence, which I'm about to explain. The Jews have a right to Palestine because they've been attached to that land for 3,000 years, way before anybody came out of the desert in Arabia and conquered. Let me, let me, you wanted an answer. You want an answer. You, do right. you do you want but, an answer? Yeah. No. Let let the speaker. No. No. Yeah. No. I'm not he, he's questions. halfway through an answer. Let him finish what he was saying. Let me finish the the, yeah. the, the answer. Yeah. Then you yeah. can regard it as satisfactory or unsatisfactory. Okay, let, let's get back to the speaker rather than the audience. Let's have your, finish your answer. The Jews have a right to Palestine because they have regarded the Jewish people, not the people invented by Shlomo Zand, who's a very poor historian. Please, please read the reviews. Please, please read the reviews of the book by people who actually know something about Jewish history. His field is French cinema, in case you've ever checked. That's his, that's his field. And maybe he knows something about that. But anyhow, the Jews for 3,000 years are a people, not just a religion. It's an unusual combination, but they are a people who've regarded the land we call Palestine today, the land of Israel in Israeli um, in nomenclature, um, as their land, as their land for 1,000 years from about 1,000 BC to 0 BC or 70 or 135 AD. They ruled that land. They were there ruling it as a sovereign nation. And since that period, when they went into exile at the end of the Roman conquest period and the end of the revolts against the Roman conquerors, they've regarded it as the land, their land and the land to which they would like to return. You may shake your head as much as you like, but that's what the Jews believe, that this is their land. Along came Muslims and Arabs out of Arabia in the 7th century and conquered that land and settled in that land and turned the population in that land from Christianity, which is what was the dominant religion at the time they conquered it, eh, turned the population into Muslims. That's what happened. That's what happened throughout the Middle East, which was a Christian area up to the Muslim conquest. What's funny about that? That's history. That's history. That's history. Mm. I didn't say barbarian, I said they conquered the Middle East. Mm. 
Can we? Did the, I say Bulgarian? In some over over time, over time. All right. Let's get back to questions. We've got we've got less than ten minutes, so I'd like to get as many more questions in as I can. But there was some question before. Did we miss one? Yes, we missed a long a long question about two-state solutions, settlements, and, okay. and so on. Take that one and then we'll take the, another The Israeli three. settlement venture in the West Bank and Gaza Strip, the settlements in the Gaza Strip were uh, uprooted by Israel in 2005. Those remaining remain in the West Bank. Do represent an obstacle to peacemaking. They do represent an obstacle to peacemaking. The expansion of the settlements uh, uh, represents an obstacle to peacemaking. Certainly psychologically, the inhabitants, the Arabs, regard them as uh, efforts to conquer and take over more and more land and in some way uh, put to in question Israeli um, uh, statements of willingness to give up the West Bank and to have a West Bank Palestinian state. All of this is true. I've always opposed the settlements. The problem is, as I see it today in terms of reaching a two-state settlement, is that the settlements aren't the central problem uh, and the central obstacle to peacemaking between Israel and the Palestinians. The settlements are one of the problems. The major problem is the Palestinian unwillingness to reach a two-state settlement, their unwillingness to have a Jewish state in any part of Palestine. This has been true in 19, wasn't true in 1937. This was true in 1947. It was true in 1978 when Arafat rejected the Camp David Agreement between Sadat and Begin, which offered the Palestinians autonomy in the West Bank and Gaza, which would have devolved quickly into a full-fledged Palestinian state. The Palestinians rejected the Clinton parameters in the year 2000 in December, which offered a two-state solution, and the Palestinians rejected in 2008 the offer similar to the Clinton parameters put on the table by Ehud Olmert, Israel's prime minister at the time. The problem which I see as the central problem in a reaching a two-state solution is Palestinian demands for a, 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 the ethos, in fact, of the Palestinian national movement with its two different heads, the Hamas, which says so explicitly, and the Fatah, which keeps fairly quiet about its ultimate intentions, their desire for all of Palestine, not a two-state solution. This is the major problem, in my view, Palestinian rejectionism. You may believe that there should be two states in Palestine. I don't know if you do, but most Palestinians think the whole of the country is theirs by right and should not be shared with the Jews in any way. There was an idea to have a, two st a, a binational state in Palestine put forward by a coterie of Jews, um, Jewish intellectuals in the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s. Um, uh, they said, well, let's have a binational state in which the two national movements will somehow form one government which will uh, rule over the, the two communities. Uh, they will share power 
there will be parity between the two communi communities in this one state solution. The problem is that very few Jews wanted that. They wanted Palestine, or at least part of Palestine, for a Jewish state. And the major problem apart from that was the Palestinians said, no, we don't want sh to share power with the Jews in Palestine. We don't want parity. We want all of Palestine for ourselves. So the binational idea never took, no, took, took off. It has taken off intellectually, at least, in the last decade with the failure of efforts, certainly from 2000 on, to reach a two-state solution. And again, you find people like Tony Judd proclaiming the desire, the necessity for a one-state solution. Jews and Arabs must learn, like everybody else, to share power, to live together, to coexist together. The problem with that, again, is very simple. Very few Jews want to share power with Arabs in Palestine. They want a Jewish state. The Arabs, they say, have 23 states. We Jews, poor Jews, would like just one little state for ourselves, the same as the Arabs have 23 states. We don't want to share the state with anybody else. And the Arabs of Palestine don't want to share Palestine with the Jews. In other words, neither of them are interested in a one-state solution. And the Jews, in addition, fear that if there ever was a one-state solution with parity, that parity would be undermined by Arab uh, birth rates and by the return of a large number of Arab refugees, which would instantly or fairly quickly turn Palestine into something which would have an Arab majority. In other words, a binational state with a large Arab majority and Jewish minority would cease to be a binational state and would become, if it's a democracy, a full-fledged Arab state with a Jewish minority, which once experienced life in Arab countries and fled the Arab world and would flee Palestine as well, leaving Palestine an Arab state in the future. So that's why a one-state solution won't make any sense and won't work. Okay, we're nearly out of time. I've got loads and loads of hands here and about three minutes left, so these are going to have to be very, very brief uh, questions. Um, let me see. There's a gentleman in white shirt and then the lady behind. So two people together there. And finally, the gentleman right at the back there with the blue shirt. That's you, yes, looking behind you. And that'd be very brief, please, because we've literally got about three, four minutes on the clock left here. Um, could I put it to you that uh, the Zionist enterprise is best understood as um, an exercise in imperialism and that the creation of um, Israel is best understood as a successful attempt by uh, a group of settlers to seize power from the uh, colonial ruler and that an analogy would be perhaps um, with uh, the Pied Noir attempt to establish their state in the northern part of um, Algeria. And it is in fact a historical anomaly. This is part of the tragedy of the Jewish people. That Zionism was born of the age of imperialism and here is a settler entity that has outlived the historical justification for that kind of state. So it lacks a fundamental legitimacy. Okay, and the lady behind you there. Um, Jerusalem, the UN proposed that it should be made an international city. That has never been mentioned. It does seem the first. Granted, the Jews were older, then came the Christians, and then came the Muslims. Well, all three, they should be able to visit and this perhaps with their own city. Well, one more thing, Morocco. You mentioned it earlier. 
in the Jewish Museum in London, new building, I visited it. There was an interesting exhibition of photographs showing the parts of Morocco the Jews left. They were, Israel was demanding, was begging immigrants into Israel. <laughs> the houses of those Jewish who'd been there for centuries there. It was most interesting. The houses are still there. Most beautifully photographed by a Dutch photographer. Okay. They were all there. Yeah. And still unoccupied. All right. Thank you. And then there was uh, one Because they belong to their okay. former Jewish owners. Okay. Thanks. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, well, listening to you regarding the Palestinian rejection of all peace plan, I was amazed because... Just one month ago, the Guardian published a, a negotiation between the Palestinian and Israeli side. Basically, what we are saying right now, Palestinian authority or Palestinian negotiator agreed to accept all the stuff regarding the status of Jerusalem, the refugee, but there was no response. Tzizi Belivni simply said, thank you. And by after all this coming here, and you are saying that Palestinian rejected it. It seems like not an academic assessment, rather like an IDF spokesperson. And regarding terrorism, do you regard terrorism is only something committed by guru? But as we know, many of the mass murder and atrocities, yes, it was committed by terrorist organization, but also it was committed by states. So when you talk about terrorism, do you make distinction? Okay, and we'll just take one more very brief one here at the front, and then that will have to be the lot. I'm sorry to all the other people who had their hands up. There's been a lot of hands up, and I've done my best to get as many in as I can. Um, Thank you very please much. Please make it very brief. Very brief. I just want to yeah. question the methodology behind your talk, in fact. You uh, kept saying throughout your presentation that the clear aim of the Palestinians... No, sorry. You, you kept saying throughout your presentation that the clear aim of the Palestinians were to harm the Jewish state, but at the same time you also kept saying that you had no documentation to back up that statement. You also admitted to having magnified the jihadi dimension behind the Palestinian resi uh, resistance movement. You admitted that you barely touched, you only touched on the subject and you didn't explore the literature. So uh, it seems that your whole presentation is based on assumptions and speculation. <laughs> and it yeah. Okay, let's, let's take that as a question. Yeah. Let's, let's and it is, of course, yeah. absolutely fine to yeah. give your opinion, but it shouldn't okay. be mistaken for historical okay. accuracy. Okay. okay. No, no, no. We want, let's have the answers to the four questions. The four yeah. questions okay. to deal with. Uh, look, I, I, yeah. maybe, maybe I was denigrating myself, belittling yeah. my academic work and scholarship. Yeah, okay, let, let them answer Thank the you question. for telling me that. Yeah. What, I would, what I would suggest, what I would, what, what, what I would suggest is that yeah. you look at my book, 1948, look at the section dealing with jihadism. In for, wait, wait, let me finish the sentence. You don't like people finishing their sentences. Look at the footnotes, look no, at the no, footnotes, no, look at the footnotes in the book where I get the various 
quotes and facts from. If you really insist on being an historian, then go to the actual documents and see if they say what I say they say. And then after you do that, you can assess whether um, what I'm suggesting about the 48 war as jihad in Arab eyes has any merit or not. I believe it, I believe it has merit. What I'm saying is this wasn't the focus of the book. This is something four pages occupies four pages of the book. I'm saying I admitted that I haven't done the thoroughgoing research which will require 10 scholars working 30 years in Arab newspapers. Maybe if you're in the archives in the Arab states would be opened, it might be easier to get at the facts. But, but um, it would require and does require a great deal of research and has to be looked at. And then you can assess whether what I said is correct or not. I'm working from a limited number of documents which actually said what I just said it said. Let's move um, quickly through the other three because we're actually over time here. So are we, they going to kick us out? Uh, I don't know. They might do. <laughs> let's, let's, um, let me finish there, the, the, yeah. if I may, please. Yeah, sure. You were citing the WikiLeaks documents, which are American documents. Can I... Can I, can I finish? You're citing what are called the Palestine Papers, which are taken from WikiLeaks documents, which are essentially American. Uh, can I finish? Can I finish? Okay, I'm wrong. I'm allowed. No. I'm not allowed. I'm not, I'm not allowed to be wrong. Wait, everybody's allowed to be wrong sometime. Let me be wrong this time. I want to be wrong about this. Let me finish my explanation. Let me finish my explanation. Let me. Let me finish. Let me finish. <coughs> he doesn't like anybody answering questions. Mm. You always uh, stop, in, stop people in the middle. Mm. The documents selectively released over the past few months are essentially American documents, which, which are reports of American conversations with a number of different Palestinians involved in the, ninth, in the 2008 negotiations with Israel's leaders. They don't have documents from the Israeli side, meaning Israeli documents about what was going on in the negotiation. They don't have documents from the Palestinian side, except perhaps some which were selectively released to show how nice and liberal and com conciliatory Palestinian negotiators were. <laughs> now, wait, let me finish, let me finish. Now, historians, what they usually do is they take as many documents as they can from as many, a wider range of sources as they can, then somehow put together a picture, but we don't have access to the necessary documents to paint a proper picture of what went on in the negotiations of 2008. We do know one simple thing, that in 2008, Ehud Olmert, the Israeli Prime Minister, put on the table a proposal which more or less conformed to the Clinton parameters, giving a Palestinian, the Palestinians for self-determination, the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, minus some 3% or 4% of the West Bank. Um, uh, and the Palestinians didn't actually say no, they simply didn't respond. Abbas didn't respond to that proposal made by Olmert. But all of this is really irrelevant. 
It's really irrelevant. What's relevant in a negotiation isn't what people leak or say they said to various people at various stages of the negotiation, because a negotiation on such a complex issue has a whole number of trade-offs. What happens with refugees redounds on what happens with Jerusalem. Israel gives something in Jerusalem, they give something in refugees, and so on. In other words, a whole package is eventually worked out, re-put on the table, as Clinton did with his parameters, and the two sides can either say yes or no to them. The fact is, the Palestinians, when offered a two-state solution, a state of their own, comprising 95% of the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and the Gaza Strip, they said no. It's as simple as that. And various leaks, and various leaks, which are tendentious along the way to show how our Ericat or this guy or that guy were actually offered really, um, a, a, you know, very conciliatory uh, um, proposals at various stages doesn't mean anything. The whole thing means something at the end of the day when you reach the table and you have a thing on the table and you sign it or don't. And it uh, unfortunately is the case the Palestinians have refused to sign and refused to waive the right of return, what they call the right of return, which is one of the I think necessary conditions, as is Israel's leaving East Jerusalem for Palestinian sovereignty to any final agreement. Israel must give up East Jerusalem and the Palestinians must give up the idea of a mass return of refugees, otherwise there is, is no deal. And whenever offered anything of that sort, the Palestinians said no, and this is the truth of the Palestinian position. When it comes down to the wire, they say no, as simple as that. We had those two questions up there. One was about Jerusalem, as I recollect, and one was about imperialism. I think well, you, you're confusing imperialism and colonialism. Mm. Imperialism is when a large state occupies the territory and then exploits the resources and human resources of some far away country. Zionism, unfortunately, never had the power of the British or the Americans or the Sixth Fleet. Well, this is, a, this, is a, this is irony, but I, maybe I, shouldn't, I should speak more clearly. Maybe I should be clearer. The Zionists were a poor, small national movement, a national liberation movement of the Jewish people, not backed really by an empire, even though the British at some point supported them, even though the Americans at some point supported them. The, the British betrayed the Zionist movement towards the end of the mandate, as you well know. Um, uh, so, so, and they colonized. What is true, and you miss, miss, you're mistaking or ju just juxtaposing imperialism and colonialism, colonialism. What the Jews did do is they colonized. They settled and colonized, not on behalf of another country, as British colonialists did in Kenya or the Americas, they settled for their own benefit, not for the benefit of some mother country, in Palestine because they believed Palestine or the land of Israel was their land by right. That's the way they saw it. That's the way they saw it. And it was a, and, and it was a national liberation movement of the Jewish people. Unfortunately, it conflicted with what emerged eventually to be a national liberation movement of another people who actually lived on the land. That's what happened. Okay, maybe just one very brief comment on about Jerusalem, then we must wind up because we're about 10 minutes early. I completely, or not completely, I semi-completely agree. <laughs> I semi-completely agree that internationalization of the old city of Jerusalem and perhaps what's called the sacred basin, <coughs> the holy basin around it, it, it should be internationalized. This probably will... Can I just say one thing? 
provide a reasonable solution for the problem of the old city and the holy basin, except that the Palestinians would reject that and they say it should all be ours. This is the problem. This is what Arafat said in Camp David in the year 2000. And this was why Camp David in the year 2000 broke down. Uh, you also find lots of Jews who will oppose that as well, without doubt. It's a, a very touchy subject, but you're right. The logic of the thing is internationalization might be the right solution for that very small piece of territory. Okay, that's it. We're at so 10 minutes over time, so I'd like to thank the speaker.